This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for this episode, Christopher Rose. During World War I, the British Empire enlisted a half million young men, predominantly from the Egyptian countryside, poor agricultural peasants commonly known as the Fellahin, in the Egyptian labor corps. They were put to work handling military logistics in Europe and the Middle East. At the beginning of the war, British authorities had made a promise not to draw Egyptians into the war. They reneged on this. And, as today's guest shows, the Egyptian Labor Corps, the ELC, was seen by many in Egypt as a form of slavery and capital punishments. Kyle Anderson, author of The Egyptian Labor Corps, Race, Space, and Place in the First World War, out now from the University of Texas Press, tells the forgotten story of these young men, culminating in the essential part they came to play in the 1919 Egyptian Revolution. Kyle Anderson is an old friend of mine. We work on similar topics, and it was great to get to sit and talk with him. I had to restrain myself from jumping in and participating in the conversation more than I should as an interviewer. I had a great time talking with Kyle, and I hope you enjoy my interview with him. Here's our conversation. Kyle Anderson, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Yeah, our traditional first question is always about you. So tell us more about you, your your personal and, and academic background and your trajectory, key advisors, and, and what led you in the direction of this project? Sure. Um, so I'm just a American guy from the suburbs of the Midwest. Um, I grew up in Michigan, and uh, I do credit my family to some extent with um, impressing upon me kind of an ethical commitment to look out for people who are less fortunate or maybe on the receiving end of unfair treatment. Um, And as I was growing up, I think, you know, the number one thing that impacted me with that commitment in mind is probably the same thing that impacted you, Chris, and a lot of other people who study the modern Middle East in our generation. It was 9-11, right? And 
growing up in the Midwest during 9-11 and the fallout that came after it, I just remember kind of the sheer ignorance about Southwest Asia, Central Asia, North Africa, which really informed so much of the response that I was seeing in people uh, around me and in my community. So I think that contributed to making me want to study Arabic when I got to college in order to kind of combat some of this ignorance, uh, you know, not just in myself, right, but also in the community uh, of people around me, right? So I ultimately decided to try to make my way thinking and writing about this stuff for a living. And that's how I ended up, you know, going down this career trajectory. Where did you find the Egyptian Labor Corps in the first place? It was actually my advisor, Ziad Fahmi, my dissertation advisor, who first told me uh, about the Egyptian Labor Corps. So I have to give him a shout out here. Uh, he knew that I was interested in studying rural Egyptians, the Felahim, right? And a lot of that came from experiences I had when I first went over to Egypt. You know, I was actually reading, um, this is kind of a, a cliche story, but in my case, it's true. I was reading a copy of Albert Horani's book, Arabic Thought in the Liberal Age, right? And for those of you who aren't familiar with you it. You should be. You should be familiar with it if you're you not. You definitely should be. It's one of the classics. Uh, but it, it really, you know, only focuses on three guys, right? Uh, Rafael Tahtawi and Gamal al-Din al-Afghani and Muhammad Abdu. And so as I'm reading this book, you know, I uh, take a train down to Aswan in Egypt. It's about a 12-hour train ride. And I start to notice... Uh, the fields that are surrounding me on either side of the train and all the people that are out there working on the fields. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, this is really a part of the story that's, that's left out of the Horani narrative that I was reading at the time. And so I knew going into grad school that I really wanted to do something about the Falahin and the rural people. And it was Ziad Fahmi, my advisor, who first told me about the uh, Egyptian labor corps um, and when I went to the British archives, I found a ton of documentation about this group. And I came to see it as this really unique moment where people from all different walks of life were suddenly really paying attention to what rural Egyptians and the Fellahin were doing. And we didn't really have a lot of other uh, documentation about people from the countryside necessarily. So I decided that, you know, I was going to tell this story. And that's what I've spent the last seven years and change trying to get done. So uh, for listeners who, who maybe aren't familiar with this story, um, and uh, you and I both work on, on the period of the First World War, so I think we're both very close to the subject matter, but let's back up and realize that not everyone does that. So uh, what exactly was the Egyptian Labor Corps and what was it role, what was its role during the First World War? Sure. Um, the Egyptian Labor Corps, or sometimes I'll just refer to them as the ELC for short, um, they were an organization that was formed during the First World War. It actually existed from 1915 to at least January of 1921, so it lasted for a bit longer than we previously think about the war in terms of its, its ending in 1918. Uh, and the purpose of the ELC was to do logistical labor kind of behind the front lines, supporting soldiers 
in various fields of battle in World War One, right? So they're doing things like loading and unloading ships or building railroads and roads or uh, in the case of the desert campaigns, they're building water pipelines to bring water uh, to the troops, right? So the troops have something to drink in the desert. So I think, you know, the that's one of the interesting things about the ELC is that they're not, they don't have weapons. They're not out on the front fighting. And they're really behind the, the front line supporting the troops. Um, and then I think the other fascinating thing about the ELC to me immediately as I started researching this book was just the numbers, the sheer scale of people that were involved in the organization. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of Egyptians. I estimate in the book that it's at least half a million caught up in the Egyptian labor corps at one point or another uh, from 1915 to 1921, right? And so when you compare that to the population of Egypt at the time, which was about 12 million, that's a significant portion um, of the population just being incorporated or impacted by the Egyptian labor corps, right? And then you also have other groups inside of Egypt. It's not just the ELC, as I'm sure you know, right? The the Camel Transport Corps, the Camel Veterinary Corps, all of these were smaller kind of offshoot groups that were doing the same kind of work. Um, so there are many groups within Egypt, and then there are also many groups across the world, right? So it's uh, wrong to just focus your attention on Egypt because Egyptians were just one of the many groups that worked in the First World War. There was the Chinese Labor Corps and the Indian Labor Corps. The British brought in laborers from the West Indies, from South Africa, and from Fiji. And the French brought in laborers too, uh, Algeria and Vietnam and Senegal. So really, um, this is just one part of a huge global story. Yeah, um, and it's it's one of those stories that it's taken a century to start telling. Uh, there, there's been a lot of work on the the literally the world aspect of. World War One, uh, in in the past two, two decades, um, and I, I would point listeners to the interview I did with Andrew Jarbo about his book on the the Indian troops uh, during the war, but also um, some uh, excellent work from uh, Richard Fogarty and a number of others working on uh, uh, Sub-Saharan African troops, Southeast Asian troops, Caribbean troops. Um, they just haven't gotten the the, the, the level of recognition. Um, and in fact, in, in your introduction, you, you you say that your book tells the story. Excuse me. Let me start that over. In, you, in your introduction, you state that your book, quote, tells the forgotten story of the Egyptian labor corps, end quote, um, which, of course, raises a question um, that I think a number of historians in a number of different places are grappling with, which is how can we forget this story if it affected so many people and made such a big impact? And why do you argue that it has been forgotten? Yeah, I mean, I think, first off, I was struck when I started the research process at how little attention the ELC had received. I mean, I started doing this research right around 2014. So it was the 100-year anniversary of the war. And there were all of these uh, books, podcasts, TV shows about the global First World War. And even in some of these podcasts, and programs, you know, you would rarely hear about the Egyptian Labor Corps. 
And I think the situation has gotten better to some extent, as you say, over the years. Uh, there's been some great work on this from people like Ali Mosalam and Mario Ruiz. Um, and I would like to think that maybe my own work has started to bring more attention to light. But, you know, if I were to answer the question, why did people ignore the Egyptian labor corps for so long? I think the first thing that I would be drawn to is to say exactly what I was just saying, which is that this is largely a rural story, right? It's the Fellahin in the countryside who are being uh, incorporated into this organization and doing most of this logistical work behind the front lines. And oftentimes, historians of modern Egypt, you know, we just don't pay that much attention to the countryside. I, I hate to say it, but the cities of Cairo and Alexandria, with their millions of people that live there today, they're so seductive. And we kind of get caught up in giving our attention to these cities. And that leaves very little left over for the countryside. So I think that's one reason why we don't know the story as well, because when we're talking about modern Egypt and the 1919 revolution and the First World War, we're so focused on the cities that we ignore what's going on in the countryside. Uh, but I do think that there's kind of a bigger, you know, historiographical thing going on here, right? And I know that you and I have talked about this and, and you're familiar um, with this as well. But I think kind of when you look at the modern historiography of Egypt, it's kind of trapped between the British Empire and the Egyptian nation, right? And so everybody's looking for a story that fits into these preconceived models, right? Historians of the British Empire first are thinking a lot about uh, capitalism in our field, especially, right? Um, they see colonialism in the British Empire as primarily about the coming of capitalism, global capitalism to Egypt, right? So we see a lot of stories about agriculture and cotton plantations, industry and finance capitalism. But the part of the British Empire that fought wars and that really depended on martial conquest to maintain itself, that kind of gets left out of a lot of these histories of imperialism as capitalism. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have these historians focused on Egyptian nationalism, right? And, and, and when I think about nationalism, you know, it's not just uh, an ideology, the idea that Egyptians constitute kind of one unified mass subject that can act uh, in, in unison, uh, but also nationalism is a methodology in our field and in history writ large, right? We're, we're all sort of educated and trained in specific national historical traditions. And the assumption is that, you know, if you want to figure out what's, what's important in Egypt at a certain time, you have to look inside the borders of the modern Egyptian nation state, right? What's going on within this bounded territory is the important part of the story. And so I think uh, for people that take this kind of uh, methodologically nationalist approach, the war, World War I, becomes this kind of exogenous shock to the system, right? Like it's coming from outside and it disturbs this uh, equilibrium that might have existed before. And, you know, instead of looking at the war as something that was sort of integral and war fighting in general is something that was integral to the British uh, occupation of Egypt, World War I becomes this kind of brief four-year blip where things change and then 
we move on and we go to a different period of history, right? So I think this is why you see a lot of really smart and perceptive historians like um, Robert Tignor, for example, kind of just skip over World War One entirely, right? There's there's the British occupation, which lasted from 1882 to 1914. And then there's the liberal constitutional period, which lasts from either 1919 or 1923, maybe up until the Nasser revolution in 1952. And so we kind of skip over World War I. Um, but when I actually did the research, what I found was that uh, you know, what was going on in the war really built off of that long history of British occupation that preceded it. And so in order to understand um, how that's the case, you really have to take kind of a global approach and focus on the history of war fighting in Egypt, not just uh, within the territorial borders of Egypt, but also down in the Sudan and other places uh, where the Egyptian army, uh, the anglicized Egyptian army was engaged in different confrontations. And so I think most historians, you know, they just don't really feel comfortable once they get outside of the territorial borders of Egypt, these are, you know, I'm speaking about historians of Egypt in this case. So that global approach that studying the First World War and studying the ELC necessitates, it's kind of uncomfortable for a lot of us who have been trained in this methodological nationalist tradition. And so we kind of uh, ignore it and we stick to speaking about stories that we feel more comfortable with. So I think that's another big part of the reason why the ELC gets ignored. Um, I, I think I just gave my myself whiplash nodding along as, as you were talking. And of course, of course, you, you and I have sort of shared our, our, our thoughts about this, but especially I think within the, within the broader history of the Middle East, I mean, I think we've all seen, um, you know, histories of 19th century Lebanon. Lebanon, of course, didn't exist as an independent country in the 19th century or uh, early 20th century Israel, which again didn't exist until 1947, as an independent country, you know, um, and so yeah, we we th- th- there is very much a uh, an adherence to to borders, and um, especially you know uh, considering the number of people who were moving in and out and in and out and around. Um, and that this is something that I I I became frustrated with in uh, in, in in my own research, uh, you know, realizing how how limiting uh, the borders of, of the twentieth century nation state are. But your your comments about shifting away from from capitalism or or imperial uh, structures as the dominant lens for 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 understanding British uh, colonialism in Egypt uh, point to your to your broader argument in the book, um, which is about the construction of the the Falahin within Egyptian society, which you argue is based not only on class uh, but also on race. Uh, and I know from from other discussions you and I have had, uh, this is a component that you introduced while writing the book. It wasn't something you'd originally covered in your dissertation. Um, so what led you to this argument and how does it help us to reconsider uh, the Fellahin and as well as the, the Egyptian labor corps? Well, that is a, a big question and a great question. And I think um, it really gets at the most important parts of the book as I see it now. Uh, you know, just to go back to what you were saying, it is really hard and intimidating to shift your focus out of this methodological nationalist tradition that we've been trained in and start to try to grasp 
sort of the whole world as a field of analysis. Um, but once we do that, you know, we start to see that ideas like race, for example, which are usually so closely associated with Europe and the West, these were really global discourses. People from around the world, Egypt and not just Egypt, were familiar with the works of Darwin and Herbert Spencer and the great, uh, and, you know, and I shouldn't say great as in good, but great as in influential um, thinkers of, you know, social Darwinism and race science that were so popular at the time, right? Um, and I, I didn't appreciate for myself how significant globally these ideas about race were uh, when I started doing the dissertation, right? I had been trained as a historian of the modern Middle East, and there we talked about uh, political economy, and we talked about the world system. And um, when I first started doing my dissertation, I was really focused on what the, the ELC could tell us about Egypt in the world system. And so I was looking at continuities between uh, like agricultural labor recruitment practices from before the war and during the war. And that was really what took up a lot of my attention um, in the dissertation. But, you know, I couldn't ignore the vast amounts of racist commentary that existed in the British sources, which anybody who has spent time poking around in the British archives is familiar with this stuff. It just permeates the sources, right? Racist language, like calling Egyptians the N-word and other kinds of things that would be totally shocking to us now, you know? At first, when I was reading this stuff, I thought about it just kind of like, you know, that quintessential crazy racist old uncle that you might have in the, the Midwest, the kinds of communities that I grew up in, when you just kind of write it off and you say, oh, that's just a relic of how people thought back then. And it's it's not really something to take seriously. Um, and I think that I basically brushed these racist comments aside and tr thought about them as kind of background noise that was distracting me from the real stuff of political economy that was impacting the lives of these, these laborers. But as I mentioned, it was just so prevalent that I had to structure one of my chapters around uh, around race in the dissertation. And that was the chapter that ultimately became the four chapters or the middle of the book about how Egyptian laborers lived uh, when they were abroad, right? Um, and, and so I used this theory from uh, the, the real tradition of critical race theory, right? Not what we're hearing about now in Republican talking points and this moral panic, but the, that 1990s, early 2000s, American legal academia uh, school of, of thought. And I borrowed this model from this guy, Keith Aoki, um, where he, I, and that's, the, that's where the subtitle of the book comes from, right? Race, space, and place. And Aoki's argument is basically that ideas about race do not, in the first place, necessarily reflect uh, any sort of biological reality, right? But that doesn't mean that they're fake. That doesn't mean that race is unimportant or should be forgotten about. Uh, it, race ideas do come to take on real meanings for people, but according to Aoki, it's only once they're instituted in space, right? Once we start to see the forced movement of people from one place to another, 
or the institutionalization of segregation. And in the United States, they're focused on redlining and Jim Crow laws and other things like that, right? So at first, I just took this model as relevant to understanding the camps themselves, where these uh, men of the Egyptian labor corps lived and worked during the First World War. And uh, the idea was basically that when they were segregated and set apart and beaten and treated poorly in the camps, they came to see themselves as fundamentally different from their white officers and similar to one another, and that these uh, collective identities then became politically meaningful later on when the protester or when they when they protested and they demonstrated against what was going on and the kind of treatment that they were getting. Um, so I had this one chapter which was about race, and the rest of the book was kind of focused on transnationalism and space, and I wasn't really sure what. There was a lot of different things in the first couple drafts of the book, and so when I sent it off to the first publisher, uh, it got desk rejected, but the publisher sent me some really helpful comments and was basically asking, you know, what is this book really about? What's really going on here? Um, and as I thought about it more and more, what I realized is that, you know, this, this model about race, ideas about race being instituted in space, and that impacting the people who are on the receiving end of these ideas, it really comes to explain the book as a whole, right? Uh, I think what I've come to understand is that instituting what the British called the Colored Labor Corps across the globe in the very first place, is really resonant with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of the global color line, right? That there's this sort of binary distinction between white people and everybody else, and everybody else, what Du Bois called the darker races of mankind, uh, basically exists to, uh, to function in a sort of inferior position vis-a-vis uh, the rest of the world, right? So this approach of thinking about the global color line, it really foregrounds issues of whiteness and the shift towards kind of a binary approach to race, which was, of course, different than the way that race was uh, thought about in the late 19th century, when different thinkers tried to construct these really intricate taxonomies of, you know, three races or six races or 29 races, the number changes, depending on who the thinker is. But, uh, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, it's race is a taxonomy. There's a number of different ones uh, that are relevant to the minds of British policymakers. But in the war, that whole intricate taxonomy kind of melts away. And you start seeing Egyptians working alongside South Africans, working alongside Chinese, working alongside Vietnamese. And they start to be grouped together as people of color by the British, right? And, and so uh, I think what I came to understand was that the coming of the ELC to Egypt was also the coming of the global color line to Egypt. And this was not something that uh, Egyptian observers were ignorant of. They, they saw this. They realized that they were being treated the same way as Africans and Asians and indigenous people across the globe. And what I came to see is that these Egyptian nationalists themselves had also uh, imbibed and internalized a lot of this global race theory 
and they kind of pushed back against this notion of people of color, right? This is this is before we see the development of uh, and the and the embracing of Pan Africanism and Pan Arabism, which comes later in the twentieth century. At this earlier era, it's you don't really see the same solidarity towards. Uh, Africans and other Arabs that you start to see later on in the 20th century, what Egyptian nationalists, uh, the way they really reacted to the global color line being drawn in their own backyard was to push back against this racialization of Egyptians as people of color, right? To assert that they themselves were different than black Africans, I think, especially is what I focus on the book. And uh, one of the the reasons why this ultimately started working for me and making sense to me was because I had this um, snippet from Salama Musa's memoir, Tarbiyat Salama Musa, where he talks about watching Egyptian labor corps uh, members getting recruited, and he refers to it as a village of black slaves, Karya Zanjia. And uh, as I did some more research on Salama Musa, uh, you know, it turns out that, that he was one of the most enthusiastic supporters of eugenics discourses and uh, somebody that was totally well-versed in social Darwinism and seemed to display uh, an antipathy and um, prejudice against Black Africans in his writing. So it was Egyptians' own conception of their racial identity that was being offended by the institution of the global color line. And what I argue in the book is that uh, the 1919 revolution, which followed the First World War, should be seen as an attempt to assert a unique alternative definition of Egyptian race, right? That, That Egyptians are not people of color. They are not Muslims, as the British had tried to call them in the late 19th century, they are not Arabs, but they are Egyptians. And in particular, I think uh, this is where we see Pharaonism and the links between modern Egyptians and the ancient pharaohs popping up as a kind of racialist discourse or a um, sense of Egyptian identity that echoes race science uh, and the way that race, sci- race science um, thought about history uh, at that time. So I hope that kind of answers your question uh, a little bit in terms of how, how race comes into the story. Right. And, um, and it makes perfect sense that the Egyptians wouldn't have embraced Pan-Africanism because uh, at the time they're colonized by the British, they themselves are colonizing the Sudan. Um, which, you know, that get, gets gets very complicated very, very quickly. So uh, can you talk a little more about how uh, this racial, sorry, this racial nationalism uh, impacts perceptions of the Fellaheen? Sure. Um, I think, you know, today when I look back at that story I told you in the very beginning of this conversation where I'm on the train and I'm looking around and I'm seeing people in the field and I'm thinking, wow, these are, you know, the real Egyptians, quote unquote, right? I I see that now today as kind of an internalized anthropological gaze that I had 
uh, adopted for myself growing up the way that I did in in the Midwest, in the United States, right? Um, and, you know, this notion that the Fellahin are somehow more authentic or, or pure than the diverse and heterogeneous people that you see in the cities like Cairo, where I was spending most of my time today, that's an idea that has deep, deep roots in the Middle East, in uh, going back a hundred years to the age to the sort of high point of of race science, right? If you read Elise K. Burton's new book about uh, human heredity and the science of human heredity in the Middle East, or go back further to Omnia Oshakri's book, uh, The Great Social Laboratory, you'll see what I'm talking about, where anthropologists of the late 19th century, early 20th century are going out and looking for kind of pure endogamous groups that represent the sort of racial essence of different populations, right? And so I think in some ways the Fellahin came to represent uh, this kind of racial essence of Egyptians. And taking this approach uh, with the popularity of global race science in mind I think is a very different approach to understanding the significance of the Fellahin in the writings of Egyptian nationalists in books like um, Michael Ezekiel Gasper's book, The Power of Representation, which came out about uh, 12 years ago or so. And what Gasper really argues in that book, uh, if, if you recall, is basically that the Fellahin came to represent the essence of Egyptianness because of the important role of agriculture in the Egyptian uh, economy, right? So once again, we're back to uh, political economy as the kind of dominant mode through which we analyze modern Egyptian history. Um, but uh, I think if we uh, if we shift approaches, instead of thinking about the Fellahin as being important because of their role in agriculture, but rather because they represent this kind of pure, endogamous, untouched population of Egyptians that we can study to get a sense of what the what the pure Egyptian thinks or or acts like in a given situation, uh, I think that um, this is ultimately why uh, this is you know an important part of the story rather as to why people became interested in the Fellahin as well. So it's not either or necessarily, but it's that we have to understand that the Fellahin were important. Um, not just because of their role in the economy, but also because of these particular ideas about purity. And in Egypt, the, the rural areas became kind of the racial repository of the nation. That's where you went and found pure Egyptians, uh, as opposed to the cities where you had, you know, this kind of diverse group. And you had, the, of course, the, the upper classes of uh, people descended from the Ottoman Turks and many times their white Caucasian concubines, right? Those were kind of the upper class of Egypt in the days of Mehmed Ali and throughout the 19th century. But as the 1919 revolution comes, you start to see that elite being replaced by a group who can trace their roots back to the countryside, right? In many cases, the sons of uh, elite families in the countryside, the sons of of an Omda, for example, a village headman. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about the Omda uh, later on in this conversation. But I think one of the most significant trends that I 
identified as I was doing the research for this book was kind of how people uh, start to claim their bona fides, their legitimacy in speaking on behalf of the Egyptian nation on the basis of their rural origins and their rural roots, right? And so I think that this, again, has to do with uh, racial nationalism, right? This idea that Egyptians are a certain kind of people, and unless you are that kind of person, you don't really have a leg to stand on when you're talking about what's good for Egypt. And so you see people like Ahmed Lutfi al-Sayed, Sa'ad Zaglul, uh, Muhammad Abdu, Muhammad Sabri, so many great figures from the Egyptian nationalist canon, all claiming uh, pride and, and getting real legitimacy on the basis of their rural uh, origins. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, yeah, and, and, and I was just thinking as you were talking, the, the sort of great irony here is that the, the, the way that people became upwardly socially mobile and into the Effendi class um, was basically by moving out of the state of being Allah. So on the one hand, you know, they're pure Egyptians. And on the other hand, they're the ones who refused to accept modernity. And so there's this great inherent contradiction, even within the society that is romanticizing their existence. Yeah, I mean, I think Lucy Rizova talks about this a lot in, in her book, um, about how these sort of upwardly mobile middle-class figures were able to negotiate both spaces of the city and the countryside and uh, are able to forge kind of a, 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 a domesticated modernity of their own. Um, and uh, in, in some case, and I think ultimately uh, that's associated with, they're able to claim this domestication of modernity because of their rural parentage and, and origins. And once we start going down that road and we start thinking about, you know, purity in terms of biological descent, now we're getting into the realm of the race concept, right? And race science. And uh, I think this is where um, the concept of racial nationalism can be fruitful, I hope. By the way, I was crushed to find out that, that Salama Musa was a social Darwinist because I've used his <laughs> writings for so many things. And somehow I had totally missed that um, when, I, when I was reading. Um, well, I, I, I mean, just to stick on that point, because I think it's a very interesting one, you know, what we see is that a sort of left social Darwinism here, right? When um, people were interested in throwing off the chains of colonialism and the oppression of colonialism. They looked to Western science to give them the methods that they needed in order to uh, progress and to advance, right? And so Salama Musa sees what he's doing when he gets interested in eugenics discourses, for example, as uplifting the Egyptian nation state in its fight against 
colonialism and his his adoption of some of the language of eugenics. Of course, today we associate eugenics entirely with the right uh, as a result of uh, Nazism and, and fascism. But before World War II, uh, there was a kind of left-wing eugenics that could also be deployed by certain groups. And we even see W.E.B. Du Bois in the United States kind of adopting some, uh, some discourse that, that looks a little bit like eugenics when you see him talking about the talented 10th and all that. So this is a very uh, different time, politically speaking, and as historians, it's our job to kind of go back and inhabit the conceptual worlds of people who who lived during this time and uh, and social social Darwinism and race were really important concepts for everybody so changing subjects slightly um, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics uh, how were men recruited for service in the Egyptian labor corps um, especially considering that I, I think most Egyptian historians have at some point used uh, General Reginald Wingate's quote that the war was not Egypt's to fight um, in an ironic sense somewhere in their writing. I, I know I certainly have. So so what sorts of methods were used to convince agricultural peasants to sign up for a war that the British themselves said was not theirs to fight? Well, First and foremost, uh, to start off with, the British depended on hired labor contractors. Um, so labor contractors had come to be popular in the, you know, really since the, the abolition of the Corvée or Asokra in Arabic, which happened in the 1890s. And labor, these labor contractors became almost a class of people that were circulating between the cities and the countryside and gathering laborers from uh, you know, idle labor from the basin irrigated parts of Egypt to come up to the deltas where there was perennial irrigation, to come up to the cities where there was demand for construction projects and industry. And so the British started off by thinking that they could work through these labor contractors and they hired, um, you know, thousands of Egyptians on temporary contracts, usually three to six months at a time, to work for the Egyptian labor corps. But as demand increased, these, the Egyptian labor corps proved to be um, effective, and the war kept on throwing up further and further challenges. The British decided to, to solve these problems by going back to the Egyptian labor corps as a source for labor. So eventually, this kind of outstripped the ability of the labor contractors, and the British shifted to... Uh, what's known as the village headman or the omda, basically like the mayor of each individual village. Uh, these, these figures, these officials, these omad, they had been incorporated into the British-run Ministry of Interior over the course of the 30 years or so of British occupation in Egypt. And, um, you know, some, some figures in the British army, they wanted to institute forced conscription by the army, but the army pushed back against this. They said they couldn't do it. It was too big of a project. They didn't want to pay uh, Egyptians on the same level of scale as the army soldiers. So conscription through the army got kind of scrapped. And 
you ended up having this system which was referred to as uh, administrative pressure. And that's a euphemism, right? Basically, the British uh, told the, the mayors, the Almud in the Ministry of Interior, you know, you have, you have to recruit this many people into the Egyptian labor corps this month. And they were given these quotas that they had to fulfill. And so uh, the Almud ultimately ended up um, reverting to sheer force and violence in many cases to meet these quotas, right? They would, uh, you know, they started out by taking anybody who wanted to work for the money. And once they went through those groups, they started looking at criminals and others who were perhaps going to be condemned to going to jail. And they would say to them, you know, instead of going to jail, I can put you in the Egyptian labor corps. We'll send you to Palestine or France or uh, Italy or Gallipoli for a few months and we'll call it even. And then um, if they still didn't have enough people to fit their quotas, they just started grabbing people off the side of the road or off their fields. And if there was any resistance, and um, you know, we'll talk about how there was resistance, I think, soon, um, they would rely on the police. They would rely on the local guards, which were known as khufara. Uh, and they would force these young men to join up and enroll in the ELC. So ultimately, it was, it was complicated. There were people who chose to sign up um, largely because there was a financial payment that was offered to them. And the payment at the time, it was five piastres a day for Egyptian labor corps workers and six piastres a day for the camel transport corps workers that I was talking about before. And this actually um, compared pretty favorably with the wages that a migrant laborer, a day laborer could get in Egypt at the time, which according to my reading of the literature, averaged around three piastres a day, maybe one to four piastres a day. So you could get, you know, relatively good money. And you would, the first thing that you would get would be a three Egyptian pound advance on your salary, which would go to your family to sort of keep them maintained while you were gone. And, you know, three Egyptian pounds doesn't sound like a lot today, but that was a lot of money back then. Um, and so some people did sign up for that, uh, but others were forced to go. And so I think the challenging thing for us as historians is to come up with a concept of recruitment in migrant labor and in the ELC in particular that can hold both of these truths kind of together, right? It was both forced and voluntary, not either or, uh, because Egyptian labor corps workers were complex, diverse people with as many different motivations as there were um, workers. And so, um, you know, later on, the nationalist activists would, of course, uh, insist that the Egyptian labor corps workers were all forced and were all being treated like slaves. And the British would insist that they were all volunteers. Um, but I think for us, as historians who are trying not to sort of internalize the viewpoints of our sources, we have to recognize that um, both kind of coexisted. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that in, in some of the records I've, I've come across where you have, for example, um, the owners of the large industrial states in, in lower Egypt, on the one hand, complaining that when the recruiters come around, people flee into the countryside because they don't want to be forced to go. But then later in the war, when the 
are, are the ELC is paying so much that uh, they have people just literally walking right off the fields and signing up because they're going to make twice as much money. And, uh, and, and so they're complaining for a whole different reason. And, and again, I think this is one of those, those, those things where if um, we start comparing notes of people working on this phenomenon in different geographical regions, we start to find a lot of, of commonalities. So for sure, the the ELC was an auxiliary force that was supporting the Egyptian expeditionary force. Now the EEF, despite its name, was actually a corps consisting of troops from Britain and other mostly white troops from other parts of the empire and and British dominions. What sorts of work were the ELC uh, recruits engaged in, and how were they treated by the EEF? Yeah, I mean, the ELC did uh, almost any kind of work imaginable that you can think of. Um, I saw examples of them working as stretcher bearers. Uh, We've already talked about building roads, railroads, um, unloading ships and loading ships, right? This is before the invention of the shipping container. So everything had to be loaded and unloaded onto a ship in in boxes that could be carried by hand. Um, But I think... Overall, the most important uh, and long-lasting task that the Egyptian Labor Corps were uh, asked to do was the building of a railroad between um, Kantara on the east bank of the Suez Canal and Gaza in in Palestine, right? And so, uh, you know, over the course of about 16 to 18 months, the Egyptian Labor Corps laid 130 miles of double-track railway across the Sinai Peninsula, which, um, if you've ever been there, you know is basically just uh, a desert, right, with very little um, water or or other infrastructure in the years before the war. And the construction of this railroad, it really transformed the possibilities for movement between Egypt and Palestine in ways that I think had kind of long-lasting effects in the Middle East, right? I was reading, I read one source that said that before the war, the travel time between Cairo and Jerusalem was about three weeks, and you had to disembark at the Suez Canal and get into a camel convoy and take your uh, camels across the desert, right? But after the railroad was constructed, that travel time was cut down to 36 hours, Um, And because the British ultimately conquered the entire territory of Palestine from the Ottomans and all the way up the eastern Mediterranean, um, they really set up shop there in what became known as the Palestine Mandate in the interwar era, as I'm sure you know. Um, And the British basically, you know, could not have run the Palestine Mandate without this railroad. Most of the early... British employees of the Palestine Mandate were uh, employees of the Anglo-Egyptian government in the years before the war. And so they moved from Egypt to Palestine by railroad once this sort of nominal sovereignty was granted to Egypt in the wake of the 1919 revolution. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about from this book was that for a brief period of time, and when I say enjoyed, what I mean was it surprised me, right? But it's obvious when you think about it, but you know, for a brief period of time, the British ran a huge Middle Eastern empire from Cairo. It included Egypt, 
but also the Sudan down into Darfur, uh, the Western Desert with Libya. They had assets in the Hejaz with Lawrence of Arabia and the Hashemites. And they conquered the entire Eastern Mediterranean. And they ran this as an empire of their own for, you know, the better part of four or five years. And with this linking up to uh, Iraq to the east, um, the British Middle Eastern Empire for this brief period of time almost rivaled the size of the British Indian Empire further east, which also included, uh, you know, the modern day states of Myanmar and Bangladesh and Pakistan. Um, So the British had set up for themselves this huge Middle Eastern Empire that they ran from Cairo during the war. And basically, they could not have done it without this railroad that the Egyptian Labor Corps built. Um, so, uh, you know, I do want to continue focusing on on Palestine uh, as a potential area of study going forward. Um, and I think that the Egyptian Labor Corps uh, really provide kind of the foundations for this British Middle Eastern Empire that would emerge uh, in the interwar period. Um so as we've discussed, there have been um, a number of uh, methods used to recruit uh, uh, men for the for the ELC, both both coercive and non-coercive. Um, so what methods of, of protest and resistance were available to them when they felt as though they were they were being uh, mistreated? Well, Egyptians did protest a lot um, when they were, asked to uh, work for the ELC. Um, The first protests started outside of the borders of Egypt in the different labor camps where Egyptian labor corps men were working. So the first one chronologically that I can tell happens in Gallipoli in 1915. And this is, uh, you know, you start to hear about in the sources, these huge demonstrations where Egyptians are locking their British officers up kind of, uh, you know, uh, putting them under siege in their own camps, uh, tearing down the campsites, and especially when the weather gets bad and these guys are basically camping outside, um, you know, one of the things to realize about these Egyptian labor corps camps where these guys lived and worked is you basically had one British officer for about 500 to 1,000 Egyptian men working uh, below him, right? So the officers, the British officers are badly outnumbered. And it's extremely uh, easy for these protesters to get the upper hand on them um, early on, right? And so, of course, what the officers would end up doing once these protests broke out is they would call in the troops from the surrounding area, and the troops would would do what, what soldiers do, right? They would shoot and they would kill uh, dozens of Egyptian protesters. And after this kind of uh, oppression and violence, oftentimes the demonstrations would die back down. So the first protests happened in Gallipoli, and then you start seeing protests pop up in France and Italy. Um, And, you know, it was shocking to me how Egyptians were some of the most unruly laborers in all of France. And this is at a time when there were laborers from China and India, Vietnam, Senegal, etc., as I mentioned before. But as far as I can tell, the Egyptians were the only ones who protested so often in France that the British ultimately just gave up and relocated them all to the Sinai campaign. And so it's only for about one year, 1917, where Egyptians are actually working in France. And 
After that, uh, you know, what the British, they claim that there is some confusion about the the length of time in the contracts, because contracts were supposed to be six months, but there was a fuzziness as to whether that six months started when you got recruited into the ELC or when you landed in France. Um, and so, and also, of course, uh, you know, the men, the, the men in Egypt who grew up uh, in, in the Nile Valley, right, were not used to working in the winters in, in France. And so they ultimately got relocated uh, and mainly um, were concentrated in the Sinai-Palestine campaign by the end of the war. And, and there, there was a lot less unrest in the Sinai-Palestine um, campaign. I was really only able to find one example of an Egyptian labor corps uh, rank and file off, uh, who had um, murdered his overseer, who was also another Egyptian, right? He, he killed him kind of as um, retribution for the way that he perceived himself being treated during the war. So there was, you know, that, that one example that I found of um, seemingly protest. But besides that, the Sinai-Palestine campaign seems to have been a place where Egyptian labor corps were less inclined to protest. And I think some of that probably has to do with the fact that uh, the ELC men were not segregated and set apart in in Palestine the same way that they were in France. You know, in, in France, the ELC was basically subjected to Jim Crow-type laws uh, where they couldn't go out into certain shops and uh, they were separated from their white officers. But because the British had these uh, particular ideas about the the racial similarity of Egyptians and Palestinians at the time, they allowed for much more um, intermixing and free uh, free movement of the ELC in Palestine. So I think that might have been potentially one of the reasons why you didn't see as much protest uh, in Palestine. Uh, you mentioned that the the men protested every step of the way along their journey. So if that's what it was like where they were based, uh, what was it like back at home? Well, um, you know, the protests at the labor camps really were the first appearance of um, resistance, I would say, from the ELC. But as the years went by, and uh, we got towards the end of the war, and even after the war was over, and you started to see recruitment continue, um, there became these huge waves of violence spreading all throughout the Egyptian countryside um, as a response to Egyptian labor corps recruitment. So basically, you have draft riots uh, spreading across Egypt, right? And unfortunately, you know, the way that I see it, we have some documentation, but I don't think that the documents that we have about this violence really even come close to covering the full scope of it. Um, you know, I was able to find reports of 35 different incidents between May and August of 1918, but I think that there were a lot more uh, incidents that happened. And I, I say this because you see things in some of these reports like, Scores of cases happen today, period, and that's it. And then you never see any details about these scores of cases, right? So uh, I can only assume that there's a lot of information that's been lost to us over the years. But, you know, these, these violent draft riots, they included anything from single individuals fighting back against the recruitment officers to families and, uh, and um, groups of households 
uniting together to try to liberate certain people from recruitment. And then I also found at least seven instances of what I call mass violence in reaction to ELC recruitment. So these are cases where big crowds of hundreds of people, in some cases, entire populations of villages mobilized in order to try to free people from uh, ELC recruitment or to resist recruiting officers. And um, and then you also get resistance uh, after recruitment. So most of most of these people who resisted recruitment ultimately were forced to, to enter into the Corps. The British might have called in the police or uh, some other force and, and violently compelled them to enter into the ELC. But then they had to get from their villages to the fronts, right? So they had to move uh, many steps along the way. And as these laborers were moving, uh, I also found evidence of of resistance popping up, right? There was one case where a group of laborers was being held in a detention center uh, kind of in order to um, gather people from the surrounding villages in in a district. And they ended up staging this big sit-in at the district and getting the whole district town involved in, uh, you know, pelting the police officers with bricks and tiles and whatever else they could find. and so, and then there were other cases that were a little less spectacular, like where these guys would desert um, and just disappear along the way. They would find ways to escape um, the cells where they were being held. Uh, and there was even a case I found where um, there was a sort of a ring of people that were exposed to, uh, they would get paid to help these laborers. Uh, sabotage their sanitary inspections. And they would do this by injecting something into the bladders, according to this one article I read of these laborers. Uh, And then when they were forced to pee for the sanitary inspectors, you know, they would fail the inspection and be sent home. So there were all these, uh, you know, creative ways uh, and subtle ways of escaping recruitment uh, in addition to the big um, demonstrations that that I talked about before. Yeah. So uh, we, we can't end the interview without talking about 1919, the, the Egyptian revolution, which um, you and I have both uh, on multiple occasions publicly talked about our reservations that the official story of the revolution leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Um, and so how, how does the Egyptian labor corps fit into uh, the way that the revolution was justified? Um, and, and, and how did the people whose names were being used as justification react to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Egyptian labor corps workers played both a symbolic role and a practical role in the 1919 revolution, right? And I think the most important thing that the ELC helps us understand about the 1919 revolution is that the revolution itself, you know, we, it, we're, we'd be wrong to think about it as being completely reducible to the actions of the few uh, elite leaders, the guys like uh, Sazaglul and others who we talked about earlier, this group of Afandia who were uh, the sort of middle striving class in Egypt. 
so many histories of the 1919 revolution narrate it as something that began with the efforts of men like Sazaglul and the political party, the Weft, that he founded, uh, and then later on spread to the rest of the country, right? But the story of the ELC, as I see it, can kind of reverse that causation to some extent, right? Because as I just mentioned, that wave of draft riots took place in the summer of 1918, almost a year before the 1919 revolution that followed the war uh, happened. And it's clear from the sources that uh, men like Sazaglul and other nationalist intellectuals and leaders, they were aware of this spate of draft riots. And they, um, they in some ways, reacted to it. Um, so I think, you know, first and foremost, uh, it's important to, to understand that uh, the war kind of sets the stage for the revolution, not just in the countryside, of course, where people are uh, angry for their brothers and their sons being taken away from them and they're experiencing these pandemic disease and food shortages that you talk about, but also for the nationalist intellectuals uh, and, and activists, right? They themselves are aware that the ELC is causing a lot of uh, anger in the countryside, and they feel that anger themselves. Um, and so uh, many of these nationalist intellectuals, they start to uh, incorporate the ELC into their rhetoric, right? Both as they're talking to the international community and as they're talking to domestic audiences. So um, when they're talking to the... the um, the global community, for example, they point to the fact that Egyptians had contributed to Allied victory in the war by doing things like building the railroad that we talked about. And so now Egyptians should also participate in the peace conference, right? So they're relying on this kind of unitary conception of the Egyptian, uh, of the Egyptian people, which allows them to identify themselves with the, the contributions and the achievements of the Egyptian labor corps. Um, and then on the other side, as they're talking to audiences at home, they're saying that, oh, our, our brothers in the, in the ELC, they're being treated like slaves. Um, and, you know, when I see this slavery, slavery metaphor popping up, I can't help but relate it to the actually existing institution of slavery in Egypt, right? That most of these nationalist intellectuals actually grew up with. Um, and when Egyptian nationalists use this rhetoric of slavery to mobilize people and to generate mobilizing force, I think in many ways what it's doing is it's, it's uh, playing on the emotions of this global color line that I talked about earlier, right? When they're saying that Egyptians should not be treated like slaves, I think in some ways what they're doing is saying that, you know, Egyptians are not appropriate for slavery in the same ways that, that other groups might be, right? Um, and, you know, and you see this popping up actually in uh, some of the, the most, um, you know, random places, like we've talked about Salama Musa, but I went to the Paris, uh, to the, the French archives in Paris, and I found this, um, this petition from a random Effendi lawyer who said that the British were treating Egyptians like uh, like African savages, right? And 
And I was trying to think about what he meant by that. And it seems to me that he's talking about the Egyptian labor corps, right? And this idea of slavery. Um, and we, we see people like Mohammed Sabri, the official historian of the revolution, uh, spelling this out more explicitly when he spends the first 20 pages or so of his book talking about the ELC. And then he complains that Egyptians are being treated like uh, men of color, right? So I think... Um, rhetorically speaking and symbolically speaking, for nationalist intellectuals and activists, the ELC played this uh, important role and it allowed for them to say something about who Egyptians were uh, and to create the appearance of a unified Egyptian subject that was oppressed by the British during the war, uh, nevertheless served them loyally contributed to the victory, and now deserved to speak at the peace conference, right? Um, and, you know, the, the problem with this uh, picture is that the Egyptian labor corps themselves, the workers, did not necessarily rise up in support of the 1919 revolution while it was going on around them, you know? Um, for, this was probably the most shocking fact that I found when I did the, my research, but um, men, ELC men, for example, were in Alexandria while the revolution was going on, but they didn't join in the demonstrations. Uh, in fact, uh, the diaries of the British officers that I've read point to the, the existence of kind of a rivalry between the ELC and the demonstrators, and the ELC was kind of making fun of these demonstrators, calling them, you know, uh, hoity-toity city boys or whatever um, and not wanting to join in with them. And we see other things like the ELC filled in for striking workers in Suez uh, and Port Said uh, who were striking in solidarity with the nationalist cause. The ELC filled in for them and allowed for the, um, the operations of the Suez Canal to continue uh, without interruption. So in many ways, they were kind of undermining the goals of, of nationalist sympathizers um, who were working on the canal, right? So, so even though nationalist intellectuals and activists, the Afandia, like to present this picture of a unified Egyptian subject, which of course then gets kind of reified in the writings of historians who talk about uh, the whole nation uniting behind Saad Zaglul and the Waft in the 1919 revolution. When you look at the archival sources, this is not actually what was going on in every case. There were people who acted in opposition to uh, what the Waft were doing or at cross purposes to the revolution. And so I think what this shows us is that, um, you know, there was no such thing as a unified mass Egyptian subject in the 1919 revolution. Certainly some people tried to present it that way, but when we look at uh, the ELC, what we see is uh, a little more complicated. So our traditional final question, uh, what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on now? Well, um, I... Um, I've sort of come to the understanding of my own work as um, being more and more interested in the social history of war during the colonial period in Egypt. Um, 
And I think war can tell us a lot about identity on the one hand, but also because of the mobilizations that have to take place in order for wars to be carried out, they can also tell us a lot about the state-society relationships. So um, I want to look at other wars that I think have made a particularly important impact on Egyptian identity uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There's kind of two particular conflicts that are drawing my attention right now. Uh, The first one is the 1948 war against Israel. Um, I'm kind of shocked by when you go back and you read the sources from around World War One, Egyptians don't really consider themselves to be Arabs, and they aren't considered Arabs. It's only really during the interwar period that you see this Arab identity start to uh, really um, be identified with in Egypt. And uh, so I want to look at how that identification came about uh, as a result of the Palestinian struggle against uh, Zionism. And I think that would be a particularly interesting project because it would allow allow us to think more about Jewish people in Egypt. So I think there's a way in which the the national subject in this, um, this vein of racial nationalism that I've been talking about, it it's inclusive and egalitarian in some aspects. It pushes back against white supremacy and empowers people who have been oppressed in Egypt, but it's also exclusionary in other aspects. And so I think this book about the Egyptian labor corps helps us explore how black Africans have been excluded from the Egyptian racial national subject in history. But I also think that there's a way in which Jewish Egyptians uh, were ultimately defined out of participation within this uh, racial national subject as well. And so um, I'm interested in learning more about the 48 war and its impact on Jewish Egyptians, also on uh, Palestinians and Egyptians writ large. Uh, and I'm already taking some uh, some Hebrew language classes, for example, to try to help me read some sources on that. But the other thing that I'm interested in uh, looking at more is the wars in Nilotic East Africa that were taking place at the end of the 19th century, right? When uh, the Khedive Ismail was um, spearheading campaigns against Ethiopia, for example. And there's this one really interesting story of this contingent of Sudanese workers who were recruited by Ismail to go serve in the Mexican War alongside Napoleon III, and then they came home and served in Ethiopia. There's a book about that that I just tracked down that I want to read more about. So I think the next project will either focus on the 48 War um, or with Israel or the late 19th century wars against Ethiopia and in Nilotic East Africa, um, and I would hope by, you know, by the end of when all is said and done, um, that I'm able to look at both of these conflicts potentially. So I think that's my immediate, you know, long-term plan. All those both sound really fascinating. The Egyptian Labor Corps, Race, Space, and Place in the First World War by Kyle Anderson was published in December 2020 from the University of Texas Press. Kyle, thank you so much for being with us. 
thanks, Chris. Always a great time chatting with you, and uh, hope we can do it again.